In this episode, PAX East Impressions and interviews including my first time playing a VR game, a couple amazing technologies for streaming, a tabletop game expansion, and a bunch of wonderful indie games. All this and more on The Geek Generation. Hey everybody, welcome to the Geek Generation. I am your host, Rob Logan. This week is our PAX East 2016 recap. We have a whole bunch of interviews coming up with game developers that we recorded on the show floor. But before we get to those, just a few things about some games that I didn't do interviews about, but I did get a hands-on with and thought they were definitely worth sharing with all of you. So first up, Party Hard, which is a game that is out right now. It has been available for a while on PC, but Party Hard is now available on PS4 and Xbox One. So go ahead and pick up a copy of those. Also from Tiny Build is a game called Speedrunners. I've been playing it for the last week or so on the Twitch stream. You can check that out at twitch.tv slash the geek generation to see everything that we play over there. Uh, After being in Steam Early Access for three years, Speedrunners has officially released and released on April 19th. So you can pick up the full version of that game right now. They've worked out a lot of the bugs. They've added a story mode. Uh, Squalls and I were playing a, a little while ago, and it is an insanely fun game. We intended to play for maybe a few rounds. I ended up playing for probably close to three hours. So it is very addictive. Uh, it's very easy to jump into but requires a lot of mastery if you really want to become better than everybody else. The next game is a tabletop game that we got to see an expansion for, an exclusive expansion that the public didn't have eyes on yet. Uh, There's a tabletop game called Betrayal at House on the Hill, and the expansion that we played for it is called Widow's Walk. Now, Betrayal at House on the Hill is a game where uh, you basically have a haunted house scenario The board game is not something fixed. It's generated each time you play the game. So there are different floors of this house and all of the characters that you are playing are inside of this house and you all cooperatively work together to uh, get items, collect artifacts, uh, make things happen. But then at a certain point in the game, everything turns. So uh, the haunt will happen, which is determined by dice and as uh, the progression of the game and certain items that are collected. And when it does, it's revealed that one of the people within that house is the betrayer and turns against the rest of the house and uh, generally, for the most part, tries to kill them. So now what started off as a cooperative game with everybody kind of boosting each other up becomes a competitive game, and now it's team versus team to see who's actually going to win. Now, the new expansion Widow's Walk includes 50 brand new haunts featuring some written by the co-creators of Cards Against Humanity, cartoonist Pendleton Ward, and Penny Arcade's Cherry Hawkins. There are 20 new room tiles, including a never-before-explored new floor, The Roof. There are 30 new cards, including 11 items, 11 events, and 8 omens, and 78 new tokens, including a new set of possession tokens that allow you to track your explorer's progress. The expected release date for Widow's Walk is October 14th. 
I highly recommend that if you have not played Betrayal at House on the Hill, that you pick that up and be ready for Widow's Walk when it finally does arrive in October. Uh, it's an insanely fun game. I first watched it on Will Wheaton's tabletop, so if you really want to see it played out, you can do so there. I have no doubt that we'll also be playing on the Twitch channel in the near future. Again, that's twitch.tv slash thegeekgeneration. The next game I had a hands-on with is called Seven, The Days Long Gone. This is a 3D isometric stealth RPG in which you take on the role of Master Thief Teriel. You explore the vast, non-linear sandbox world of Pei Island, part of the Vetral Empire. In 7, classic isometric gameplay is being redefined. Fool's Theory have created a parkour climbing system that gives you the ability to traverse freely in both horizontal and vertical fashions of any size, height, or variety. Teriel's journey takes place in a beyond-post-apocalyptic environment where life has reset and civilization has begun again. Difficult moral choices will paint the road of your play experience, leading to unforeseen consequences along the way. Now, I played this game for, I would say, about 45 to 50 minutes. I had a lot of time with it. Uh, it's still in a pre-alpha state right now, so there's a lot of bugs to be worked out, and that's completely expected and understandable at this stage of development. Uh, it is a lot of fun, I guess, to describe it best. Think about the look of maybe the classic Fallout 1 or 2 uh, with some of the movement elements of an Assassin's Creed where you can traverse the landscape in that way. And uh, it's very interesting. The story unfolds with you as a uh, prisoner being released. And from there, it just opens up to a whole world of craziness. Uh, there's a lot of ways to solve all the different puzzles that you can run into and uh, complete certain missions. And it is an open world, so there's no loading screen separating different places. You can go pretty much anywhere at any time as long as you've unlocked that area of the game and have the resources necessary to get there. So definitely check out 7, The Days Long Gone. Uh, when it finally releases, there is no release date announced just yet. The team is still working on it, as I mentioned, but do be on the lookout for it. The last game that I played uh, but didn't unfortunately have an opportunity to record an interview for is a game called Manual Samuel. In it, Samuel is just an ordinary guy. He has a job, a girlfriend, his health, nothing at all to complain about. Until that is, he's knocked over and killed, at which point things become a little more complicated. You see, far from that being the end of the story, it's literally the beginning. Following a meeting with Death himself, Sam is offered a deal live for 24 hours manually, or have his soul tortured in hell for all eternity. How could he possibly refuse? Manual Samuel is the story of those 24 hours with players assuming control of the titular hero as he attempts to navigate his normal life, performing everything manually. Breathe in, breathe out, move your left leg, move your right leg, blink, work, kiss, even piss. All of Sam's bodily functions are controlled by the player. The premise of this game was too intriguing to pass up. Uh, it's It seems like very simplistic gameplay, but it gets complicated really quickly. As you're doing everything else, like it says, you need to hit one button and hold one button to breathe in, another breathe out, and if you don't, your face starts to get blue and you pass out until you start breathing again. You need to blink your eyes continually every now and then. If you don't, the screen starts to get white and uh, bright whiter and bright whiter until you start blinking and you can see everything again. 
to walk. It's alternating the shoulder buttons, left and right, then left and right. Your spine even flops over at certain points and you need to hit up to bring yourself back to an upright position. It's pretty crazy, especially considering you have to do all these things uh, like getting dressed and brushing your teeth and using the bathroom all while maintaining those breaths and blinking. And it gets really complicated really fast. But part of the fun is in the failure. Uh, you're going to mess up a lot. And the way Samuel deals with that in certain situations is part of the fun of the game. So be on the lookout for Manual Samuel when it finally does release. As mentioned at the top of the show, we have lots of interviews with game developers from the floor of PAX East. On the floor, I had my first virtual reality experience with a game called Faded the Silent Oath. I also got to get a hands-on with a project that a former student of mine created. Uh, Dan Driggs created a VR experience called The Piper, and he'll tell you a little bit about that. We explored two different streaming technologies, one being a hardware solution for streamers called Screens, and another being a software solution called Infinicine. Both are very exciting, and we'll tell you all about those coming up. And then finally, we have a bunch of games that we did interviews about, namely Kim the Avenger Cow, Randall, Ruby Grim Eclipse, Mages of Mistralia, and Mechazoo. So stay tuned for all of those right now. So we're talking about Faded the Silent Oath, which is a uh, fully immersive VR experience. This was my first experience was a VR game. And and it it really like caught me by surprise. So when the there's a horse and carriage mechanic here, actually, I'll let you explain the game because you can probably do it better than me. Uh, so, this, so this is a, a really small per- portion of the game, but in this demo, uh, you're driving a, a horse-driven carriage uh, with your family in it, and, and there's some uh, uh, unfortunate event that happened, and you have to uh, save your family from death, actually. Now, as I was going through the demo, uh, you have a fantastic experience set up here for PAX with the horse reins and everything. Uh, what are the controls going to be like for those that are playing at home? Uh, we're supporting supporting the Xbox controller. Uh, the game is cross-platform, so it's going to be on, on uh, uh, Oculus, HTC Vive, and PlayStation VR. So we wanted to build a an experience that that that, that uh, can have the same controller everywhere. So we built that uh, with this in mind. So uh, what we're using is the both both triggers, so they're basically the extension of your arm. So the left trigger is your left arm, the right trigger is your right arm, and everything you're interacting in the game is going to be using those your hands. So it feels really natural and, and lets you focus on the story a bit more than that. Oh well, where's my X button? Where's my A button? Because you don't see a remote control in, in VR, so it was really important for us to simplify everything. This is the first packs that I've seen so many different VR experiencers around. Um, is that something you've been waiting for? Is this like a, a medium you've been wanting to get into for a while? Or is it, this is new and now that I have this story I can tell through this medium and that's the excitement? Um, we've started working on Faded uh, two years ago. Uh, so it was an experience built for VR. We always had VR in mind when we started working on this. I wasn't part of this project, but we also did some Gear VR project before that and some uh, some equivalent to the Google Cardboard uh, things. It was with Viewmaster of Mattel. I don't know if you've seen this, but uh, we've done a couple of VR experience, but this was our, our, our own IP, our own ideas, and we wanted to create a story-driven experience that focused on, on emotions and, and narrative and uh, yeah. 
Uh, I've noticed with a lot of VR games, too, one of the things that people are seeming to get around or are having to get around is we don't have a treadmill or anything like, like that. So using the horse carriage is a smart way to create the narrative where you can actually move through this world. Was that what you went to first? Did you have the story first and then you wanted to create the transportation around that? Or was it you wanted something in a horse and buggy and then you tied the story to that? We. We are actually doing first-person locomotion in the game, so you're doing horse carriage now, but you're going to be walking around. It used to be a really unpopular choices, but, uh, choice, but people are getting used to VR and they want different experience. Uh, we know that our experience, even though we've built it so it's as comfortable as possible, we know that it might not be for everybody. There's people that are really sensitive to VR and it's fine. But I see VR more as a uh, theme park where you have roller coasters, you have uh, the, the big wheel or choose your ride you, you just need to be uh, frank with your player and tell them that, that this is what they're getting into and if you're, they're fine with it it's, it's good and that we were outcast for a while but that actually put us in a pretty nice place now because there's a lot of people wanting th these kinds of ex experience and there's really few of them so uh, people are waiting for Fader to, to, to immerse himself in, in, in that kind of world and first-person locomotion is really hard to uh, uh, not do when when you want to do this. Yeah, yeah. Yes. The, the story, what's the origin of that? Is this from an existing tale or is this something completely original? Uh, we are highly inspired by the Norse mythology, so uh, the uh, the book, uh, the, the prose of Edda or Edda's prose, I don't remember. It's, so we took that, we inspired ourselves and, and so you are living the myth of the Norse mythology, so the myth is true, you're living in Nigrazil, uh, it's Ragnarok, it's the end of the world, but we bring our whole angle with, uh, with, by bringing uh, the family into this, so, so you're, you're, uh, uh, you're playing a, a Viking, but it's, it's not a, a, a hero, it's, it's really a family man, and you want your family to survive Ragnarok, so it's, it's, it's a story of exile and, and survival more than a fighting giants and stuff like that. So. But, but as far as the, uh, the outer story or the, the, the world, it's highly inspired by Norse mythology. Now you have an interesting communication mechanic in the game too, where the characters actually respond to your nods up and down and left and right. Uh, were there other things that you had tried for communication or was this kind of the idea from the beginning? Uh, well, interaction with uh, the outer world, well, the, the, the NPCs or the characters in the games are really important because if, if you don't do it, uh, you're going to feel like a ghost walking around and, and, and it's even worse in VR because it, you're so immersed in it that anything that is, is, is off, you'll notice it and it's going to break the sense of presence. So uh, the nodding is one thing. Just small things like uh, uh, people acknowledging your presence, talking to you, you looking at you, but not in a creepy way. If I if I stare at you like this for a while, you say, "Well, well, this guy is a freak." So we had to figure out ways that, that, that the eyes are tracking you, but not all the time. But, but yeah, you need to have the feeling that the world is aware of your presence where wherever you go. So it's a big challenge, but uh, I think we, we've, we've done it pretty, pretty well. It's interesting with the first person thing like that, and like you said, the characters all acknowledging you, it really brings you into the game in a way that I've never experienced before, which is very exciting. What other things have you seen people do during these demos that you maybe didn't expect when you were programming the game? Uh, well, it, it was something that I wish people would do, but I, I, I only... So a few people do it. Is, is that at some point I don't know if you saw your uh, your your child is actually almost falling, 
So I saw people reach down to her and try to grab her, yeah. and this for me is the best part because I really want to uh, emphasize this, this relation of kin and, and protection of your of your child. And there's a strong bond there. I'm a father myself, so this is something I wanted to create in, in the game. So I'm really happy when I see this. I admit that I had an instinct when the raven first landed on the car. I wanted to swat at it, and then I remembered I can't do that. So Some people want to bet it, but you want to you want to throw them away. It's fine. Yeah. And when it, when it picks up and gets going, I was not expecting that at all. And and it did feel like a roller coaster, like because this was my first VR experience. I didn't know how much my brain would accept this input as real. So as I started getting faster and approaching a cliff, I quickly got a fear of heights that I normally wouldn't get unless I was in the real world. And then it just all came in. Yeah, VR is awesome for this. You, 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 your, your brain gets tricked, really. Yeah, you believe you are there. And this is great because, well, our demo is awesome, but you, you, you are also experiencing VR for the first time. Man. So that gave us extra points because VR is awesome by itself. So, and honestly, this is a good experience to start with. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a, there's so many things you can do and so, so, so many uh, things you can explore. Uh, we wanted to explore emotions, but other people are doing great stuff with gameplays and uh, social stuff. So there's a lot more coming and we're uh, so curious about what's the next thing. Well, I thank you for the experience. I am not only excited about VR as a whole now because of this game, but I'm excited for this game as well. So when is this coming out? April 28th on uh, HTC Vive and Oculus Rift, and we're going to be a launch title uh, in October for the PlayStation VR. Awesome. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right, so I'm here uh, with the creator of Screens, which is, you could probably better Actually, explain I'm not the creator. it. Creator. I'm, I'm part of one of the guys of the team, right? Okay. The creator's not here, but that's all fine. My name is Mark Clement. Okay. Uh, and you can probably describe the project a lot better than I, so you can give our listeners a brief overview. Yeah, so around uh, four years ago, we were on a boat and we were thinking, hey, you know, we should do something for TV. And then it turns out that um, we start looking at, you know, people were doing video gaming and streaming, and we say, hey, you know what? That technology really can apply very well to street gamers and streamers. Yeah. And so we adapted the technology specifically for gamers and streamers so, you know, to address the issues with how, how do you combine um, your, your consoles, your PC on the same display, or maybe your console PC and maybe a bit of TV, right? Kind of, sure. you know, and then said, you know, these guys are going to stream, they're going to want to put their faces on the screen, and so they, we added chroma key. So we'd add a lot of features which allows them to complement what they're doing on XSplit or OBS, but made in a, in, a, in a dedicated platform that, you know, that is stable, that is uh, rugged, that can be shipped, you know, from point A to point B, you know, without, without, without uh, having to reconfigure drivers or anything. So basically, it's a turnkey solution. Yeah, yeah. So I'm a streamer too, so it's one of the reasons I'm very excited about this. Aside from just the television applications, for right. sure, and the innovation there. So uh, from a streamer point of view, uh, what, what is this doing for me as far as like reducing my CPU load or anything like that? Well, from a streamer perspective, from a CPU perspective, well, you don't, you're not using a CPU, right? So you don't need that second box. You know, if you're, uh, if you're, if you, if, if you need to composite your screen today, it's like you typically will have a second computer to do all the, the compositing. You don't need to do that anymore. So basically, all the compositing is done directly in the hardware. So you, you bring up your. Um, your iOS application or your web browser, you basically composite the way that you want. You set up your mask, you set up your your layers, um, you save them, you're done. Yeah. And then everything that you're doing live is actually composited directly on your screen. So 
Uh, there is, uh, there's on the hardware, there's a button that you can go out and press to change the layout. So if you, if you have a certain workflow that you want to follow, you know, you have step one, step two, step three, you can actually step through all the, uh, uh, all the layers as you are, you know, doing your production, right? So yeah, so from a, from purely from a, uh, a simplifying your gear perspective, this is basically it's all about HDMI connection, and basically we do all the compositing and the layering for you. Yeah. So I recently just started playing around with capture cards too, yeah. and experimenting with different ones. Uh, is this a substitute, or is this an uh, something to add on to your existing setup? So. Uh, from a capture card perspective, so the, we, we, we just had a Kickstarter, and on a Kickstarter, we actually had uh, the, 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 this notion of having the Pro Series, which was adding a streaming device. So basically, as you create a composite image, um, you composite your image, and basically, you have one button push or go out to Twitch or where, wherever it's got an E.264. So, so we're building that, we're going to be shipping that. But putting that aside, so if you, ha if you have your own gear today, so you're obviously streaming, so if you have your own gear, all you do is you would actually take your streaming device, you would hook it up directly to the output of screens, and then from that point you would stream out to, to whoever you're streaming. So it doesn't really remove any of your gear, it complements what you have, but it also simplifies your setup. So one of the appeals to me is, as uh, I do stream, but I don't always just like to game, like I like to be a producer and I like to build original content. We do uh, like geek trivia game shows in a Jeopardy format, we host all sorts of game shows like that. So I like to have, uh, possibly, it looks like you have the uh, configuration on an iPad. Would I be able to hand that to someone else and have them basically produce my show and direct? Oh, absolutely. So the whole, the whole idea behind screens is to make things simple. So once the layouts have been created, once you're happy with the layouts, what you do is that you save them. You can save them locally or you can save it in our cloud. When they're saved in the cloud, that means that everybody that's in that in your family of cloud can go out and down upload that layout to to the iOS application or yeah. to the iPad and basically utilize the way that you've done it or maybe modify them on the fly. So basically it's all about simplicity. Uh, you save the layout and you can be recalled at any given time. So somebody else can go out and, and run your layouts as you're doing your, your production. Sure. We were talking a little bit before uh, we started recording about the Kickstarter. Yeah. Uh, what has your experience been? Because I've found that a lot of Kickstarters don't seem to deliver on time. They run into a lot of problems moving forward. How has your experience been? Well, our experience with Kickstarter has been amazing. So we, we, uh, we had been in uh, designing these things for the last four years, and so we already had a working prototype because we had been uh, participating at TwitchCon. We had been participating at all the, the last five PAXs. So when we were when we went through Kickstarter, we already had you know the concept. We already had the hardware built for the Kickstarter, so we knew that. You know, this is going to we're going to be able to to deliver. Sure. So we spent a lot of time. We have a really good engineering team. Spent a lot of time, you know, tuning and and, and figuring out the, the 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 hardware and you know, working on bugs and yeah. working on interoperability issues. So for us, it's been amazing. And and the beauty is is that we actually shipped a product on the day that we promised we were going to ship. So now we're actually doing a slow rollout so that. When people are getting their boxes, we want them to have a good experience. But you know, when you when you design a product, there's always going to be a little bugs, right? And so, you know, what we want to do is we want to make sure that you know those people that that, that are the first ones to receive them are getting our 100% attention. So, like this morning, I sent out some emails to these guys that that were getting their units, and I said, hey, when you're ready to unbox it, 
go through the unboxing experience and I'll, I'll walk you through it if you have any questions. If there is, I'll take notes and then I'll bring bring it back to engineering because we want to make this a really a good experience for people. And I, and I think we're there. Yeah, it sounds like you're really involved with your community, which oh, is absolutely, amazing. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, in, in the creation of this project, what was the gap in the industry that you saw that just needed to be addressed? Well, the, the big gap, I guess, is um, if I, from a, purely from a gaming and streaming uh, perspective, one of the challenges that we see is that, you know, there's a lot of people, young kids, right, six years old, eight years old, ten years old, and uh, even, you know, the older guys that are looking at the existing streaming gear that is required, it's complex. I mean, just having to deal with the audio thing, I mean, it, it's got me puzzled myself, and I'm an engineer, right? So just that whole thing, and there's not a lot of user guides out there to how to do that. So we said, you know, we, we believe that the streaming community is going, to, is, is going to blossom, but it's only going to blossom if we can figure out a way to simplify the streaming thing, right? Yeah. So this basically is a studio in a box, if you want to look at it like, like yeah. that. So somebody, a young kid, can literally go out, get this thing, put it on his desk, and start streaming uh, day one because all he needs to do is take his camera, so if he's got a green screen in the back, he takes his camera, he puts his console in, and he basically starts to stream because everything is basically turnkey. He doesn't need to worry about drivers, doesn't need to worry about CPU lag, he doesn't yeah. need to worry about the cost, because you know, the cost of the cost of a setup is, is, is not just the cost of the hardware that you need to have, it's the cost of the cabling, it's the cost in time, it's yes. the frustration. Yes. So I just got a new OS update and all of a sudden all my drivers don't work. What do I do? So I gotta go out and figure this out. The thing kind of crashes, it slags, it slows down, I cannot isolate. So this actually eliminates all these all these interoperability issues. Not that we're gonna be you know 100% perfect, because you know what? We still have a lot of learning to do on usability and all that. But you know, I think we're gonna get there pretty quickly. Yeah. It is amazing to see what you guys are doing. Uh, you said you're fulfilling Kickstarter backing orders now. You have a special thing going on at PAX here. When do you plan on having this publicly available? So that's that's part of our our, our business business challenge right now. So you know, how do you create a product and set the price in a way that the gamers and uh, the, the, the the gamers and the streamers are able to afford it, right? So you know. So there's all kinds of business strategies that we're looking at right now. Um, all I can say is stay tuned. All right, well, so nice talking to you. Thank you for taking the time. All right, thank you. All right, I'm here with We The Force Studios. We're taking a look at Randall and Kim the Avenger Cow, two uh, platforming games and yet very different in a lot of different ways. Uh, first to talk about Randall, can you give us a basic premise of the game? For sure. Uh, Randall, it's, uh, well, it's our hero here. And he's going against a big uh, corporation that basically brainwashed the whole population there. Uh, what's cool about our game is a Metroidvania type of game, uh, and you can control the enemies of uh, all the enemies on the screen. So that gives you a diversity of gameplay. So each enemy has different abilities. When you control them, you get the same abilities. So you get to play as an enemy as well. So you compared it to when you were telling me Super Meat Boy and Guacamelee, uh, two games I really like. There's definitely a lot of unforgiving parts of Randall with the traps and stuff. You uh, die, restart constantly. Yeah, that's uh, we're really uh, we're real fans of uh, Super Meat Boy and Guacamelee, so that's a, a good combination. And you get right into the action, so the jumps are very neat. You gotta be like pushing hard, and well, you play it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, the control styles of each enemy as you grab them too completely changes the way that you play the game. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, uh, that's something that we wanted to do a little different. Like we wanted to have something uh, like more uh, rich gameplay. So we say, okay, let's let's focus on the enemies because they're gonna have different abilities. So you're gonna have more variation, and it's not gonna be always doing the same thing. Sure. For example, when you when you were flying. You have to be very careful of the of the sensibility, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's a lot a lot more sensitive when you're flying yeah. around. The first time I just flew right up into the lasers because <laughs> I was still getting the hang of it. But I like the learning curve. It's definitely a game of mastery. Yeah. So you play it over and over. You you're expected to die a few times, yeah. kind of before you master <laughs> a puzzle. Yeah, and then uh, Kim the Avenger Cow. Very different art style, a lot more humorous compared to the dark 3D-ish style of yeah. Randall. Uh, a lot of great cartoony animation. And you said this is still in a very early stage, right? Yeah, this is uh, in the early development. It's actually, both games are actually on green light, but this one might come up uh, early next year. That's something really 90s. Like I was born in the, uh, you know, in yeah. the 90s, so. And if, if you play Earthward Game before, it will remind you of that too. Yeah, sure. So and it's all humoristic. It's not a vegan game. <laughs> we got we got a few people saying like, "Hey, there's a vegan game." Right. Um, hey, whatever. You, people yeah, want whatever you like. Towards, right? <laughs> um, the, the mechanic of reloading the cannon. So Kim, for people that can't see, Kim has a, a gun, a milk gun attached to her udders, and constantly reloads by kind of shaking her belly, getting the milk back in there. Yeah. Uh, who came up with that? Hector, actually, he's yeah. the director and the animator of uh, of Kim. He did all the, pretty much everything. He did all the the graphics, the art, the idea. Wow. Uh, yeah. So he's directing the Hector Amavisca. That's amazing. Yeah. The the humor is great too. So are we going to see other characters that are along? Like we have sheep throwing grenades. Uh, we have spiders everywhere. You're collecting chickens. Yeah, we got a, we got ninja horses. We got a bunch of crazy stuff. You'll see. But nice, nice. <laughs> so, what's the objective? What's Kim trying to do in this game? He's he's going against his farmers because they use her as uh, to produce more milk. So now that he's angry, he's just going against them and he's liberating more animals as well. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> so, is there an expected release date once these leave green light? We're, we're planning to f uh, finish this year, like the whole game, and hopefully around January next year, this will be on PlayStation 4 and Steam at the same time. Awesome. And if people want to hear more about We The Force and what you're working on, where can they go? Uh, you can go to Facebook, you just go to We The Force, or you can go to WeTheForce.com, or KimTheAvengerCal.com, or RandallTheGame.com. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. No, thank you. All right. I'm here with Rooster T talking about Ruby Grim Eclipse. Uh, can you give us a little heads-up overview of the game, what, what it's like? Sure thing. Uh, so it's a four-player co-op, up to four-player, hack and slash. You can play it by yourself offline, or if you have friends that you want to play with, you can go ahead and do that. And uh, It's pretty fun. We enjoy it. <laughs> so you have the, the main team here representing the game. Uh, are there other characters from the series that we're going to see pop up here and there? Nothing we can mention, right, the, Abe? The million-dollar question. Yeah. It's, it's definitely something that we want to do, and if we have the resources to do it, we will. The question is when, and we don't really have a, a strong answer for that right now. So what is the status of the game currently? You said that it was on Greenlight right now, right? Uh, it's Steam Early Access, Early which basically access. means it's a paid beta, but uh, if you buy it now, you get it for a lot cheaper than it would be when it comes out for the full release. Okay. So it's, it's $14.99, and uh, the full release will be coming uh, later this year. 
What kind of challenges do you guys run into when you're taking uh, an established property like this and developing it into something more interactive where choice kind of falls on the player? When we announced team attacks were coming, uh, I think a lot of people assumed it would look very very much like the show. Uh, But... We're a team of five people, so we try. We had to make it as reasonable as possible. So, I think the challenges are just being a really small team and trying to get stuff done in a really small amount of time. Yeah. But I think we're, you know, Abe and I are very versatile in terms of what we do on the team. We're both artists and designers, and we have two really awesome programmers. And Jordan, who started all of this, yeah. is now our animator. So. Uh, yeah, it's, it's been pretty fun so far, yeah. What kind of access do you have to resources from the series itself? Like, can you pull sounds directly? Can you pull artwork directly? Like, what kind of stuff? We, we have a, a big network drive with all that stuff. The, the problem when it comes to, like, animations and art and stuff like that is that we follow kind of a different pipeline, art pipeline. Uh, the assets that we create have to be hyper-optimized to fit in, like, uh, to, to work in the game engine and to be performant uh, as a game. Uh, when you're when you're creating a show with really high, highly detailed characters, there's there's really no polygon budgets or or performance budgets because because it's all being rendered to video anyway. Yeah. At the end of the day, so uh, while that stuff is great reference, a lot of it has to be recreated for for the game purposes. Yeah. Yeah. But but as far as like audio goes, yeah, we can take that wholesale, uh, and we have uh, yeah. a lot of the uh, audio assets in the game are and the mu- all the music's taken from the show right now. Okay. So, Plus, yeah. we have all we have access to all the voice actors. They work with us there, so you know it's really easy. If we, I know we're going to be needing some voiceover stuff for our next big update coming pretty soon. So. Uh, everybody's there, so it's we don't really have to go too far to get voice talent help. You know, Miles is there, uh, Barbara, everybody. You know, a, a lot of licensed games in the past have suffered from just wanting to sell something based on the license and not necessarily being the best games. That's only changed, I think, in recent years. We're starting to see a higher caliber of those kind of games. What are you doing to kind of prevent falling into that potential trap? Well, I think. Uh, I mean, the game really exists because Monty, the creator of Ruby, saw Jordan's demo and said, holy shit, I really want that to be the game. Sure. And, uh, and when, it's, when you're passionate about what you make and you see somebody else kind of riffing on it and say, oh man, that's really cool. Um, I don't know, that's just like, I don't think we're going to fall into that trap. I yeah. think it's pretty good so far. I think to Andy's point, we had a really, really good base to start from. And I, as, us as game developers, we have an incredibly high uh, quality bar, and uh, and and we're very self-critical. <laughs> we, we don't want to make anything crappy. And, and I guess the other facet of that uh, question is that we exist, uh, obviously, at Rooster Teeth, but it's kind of a separate entity. So we we really are the game experts at Rooster Teeth. So so they they trust us to make something cool. We, we don't have to necessarily like say recreate all the the scenes from the show uh they're, they're kind of letting us take our own own direction and uh all the while we're, we're consulting basically with miles and carrie and making sure that any any uh, uh additional dialogue or new settings or whatever uh can can it coexist with the the ruby universe so uh you know we're, we're given a pretty long leash as it were and uh uh, and I think it's it's worked well for us. Uh, we want to continue to extend the series as opposed to just um, you know represent air parts from the show. Uh, while that while that stuff is super cool to be able to interact with something that you've seen on TV, I think we also want to bring our own flavor to to the Ruby universe. And yeah. uh, and who knows, maybe someday that'll be reverse integrated into into the new season or whatever. You know, uh, it sounds like you're both fans, obviously, of the show and came into this as fans. 
is is there something you're trying to do like you said kind of adding something to the series is there a stamp that you're trying to put on your own personal stamp to say like I created this part of the canon and maybe now it carries over well I know some parts of the story that are not really being they're not able to be revealed yet Uh, but we've talked about like wow that'd be cool if these and this if this character popped up in the show and and so Miles and Carrie are aware of what the story is and they uh, yeah that'd be pretty awesome I that'd be something to be super proud of because again the shows you know season one season two are really fun and season three just kicked it up and you know holy shit it's awesome yeah. <laughs> um, and, and lastly uh, there's a lot of influences that I see in the game there's a little dynasty warriors going on with waves of enemies and like that what kind of other games were you looking at too for influences on this uh, s- strangely Left 4 Dead was was one was an original kind of uh, influence. The, the, the game has changed massively since then. I guess just to give you an, uh, some some Ruby game lore, um, we uh, started with a prototype. Uh, from there, we we wanted to take in kind of a very system driven game with uh, the equivalent of like a Left 4 Dead AI director that would spawn enemies uh, and sort of pull you through a level. Uh, uh, systemically as opposed to having to create content for it. Uh, and, and the reason we, we came up with that was because we were a small team and we we're like, okay, what, what, can we, what can we do to basically do this, uh, create this game in the time allotted and, uh, and, uh, and, make, it and make it good. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so that was like the original, the original vision. It was like, oh, it'll be like Left 4 Dead. And the, but, but then as it went on, we realized there were so many, so many elements of like Left 4 Dead that... Um, like, like for instance, the the um, I don't know you call them the specialized zombies, the uh, hunters, boomers, all that stuff. Uh, so significantly change up the gameplay, and we didn't have anything like that at, at the the time. I think actually our AI's gotten a lot more complex since then. But um, uh, the the other facet of it is that writing a system that does that well, uh, the, a dynamic system that basically creates an experience for you takes so much engineering time and, and, and we quickly found that out yeah, and, yeah. and went in a more content driven uh, thing so so it really isn't that much like Left 4 Dead but, but it's it's interesting to think about that, how, how we've changed, changed direction the, the other reason that I think it didn't make sense for this game is that the Ruby Ruby as an IP uh, is a very character driven content driven show sure. we didn't want it to be like throwaway experiences we want it to be a very crafted thing like the show is you know so that's that's kind of where we ended up uh but but in terms of other influences you know uh i, I really love bayonetta uh and uh, I, I, I think you know the arkham series was was a big influence like with the combat revision stuff we've in, we've in, introduced mechanics like uh countering and uh, uh heavy attack and and uh some some other stuff some some new AI behaviors that have changed it up a little bit. The concept of like a guarded state, sure, sure. Um, all, all of this this kind of new, fresh stuff where we're we're taking elements of uh, sort of Western beat 'em up games and sort of pending them to to the uh, Japanese style yeah, yeah. of game. And, and and I think that marriage is is cool, and and that also kind of resonates with Ruby as a American made anime. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so that's I think that's kind of where Initially, we're coming. Initially, when I got hired, it was always. I got hired in on February first. I haven't. I'm fairly new to the team, and Abe can tell you every meeting that we had about combat. I was the guy. I was saying, "Well, in Dark Souls, blah blah blah. In Bloodborne, blah blah blah." But that would be sort of taken away from the fast-paced, high, high-paced combat that Ruby is. So Bloodborne's a little bit more sludges along, and it's a little bit more dirty and slower and stuff like that. So um, that's always been my sort of uh, influence, but. 
definitely the Arkham series, uh, Assassin's Creed, sort of going between enemies and yeah, stunning this yeah. dude and taking this guy out. Um, yeah, Shadow of Mordor too. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Basically, awesome. Batman and the Lord of the Rings universe. Yeah, you're, you're speaking my language <laughs> completely. Uh, so you said it's on early access right now. Is there a timeline for when we're going to break out of early access and have an official release, or is that still far in the future? Later this year. I wouldn't say it's far in the future, but I can't get more specific than that, yeah. right? Um, we're, we're very hesitant to commit uh, publicly, but, um, sure. you know, we would not, not, not super far off. With yeah. the size of the team we have, it's it's really hard to guess, you know, to guess how, what we can do in that amount of time, just because it's, what it's kind of five road, people. <laughs> what kind of roadblocks we'll run into and stuff like yeah, that. I mean, exactly. it's just, it, it's invigorating. It's, it's really awesome making a, a game of this scale with this few people it's like well how are we gonna like like it, it completely changes the way you think about game development you know like it, it means that you have to cut corners in the right places uh, and and put your energy and, and be, be very focused with your energy you know yeah. so uh, it's, a, it's a different way of, of operating but we like it I think awesome. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time we yeah. look forward to the game I know there's a huge fan base that also looks forward to it so yeah, thanks for speaking to us yeah, thanks awesome, a lot man. I appreciate yeah. it we're here checking out Infinicine at PAX East. Uh, can you give a little overview of what Infinicine actually is? Yeah, uh, we're a broadcast studio in the cloud. Uh, simpler way to say it, think Google Docs for a live video production. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the layout here, there's a lot of similar things for people that have used anything like OBS or XSplit or anything like that. You have your uh, assets. Yeah, and I think you'll find that they're laid out a little bit better. They are. They tend to be. approachable. Um, so what we've done is essentially all you have to install on your local computer is a little app in the system tray. Okay. And then you pair that with our website with a little six-digit code. Think about like installing Netflix on your Xbox kind of okay, thing. Okay, cool. So that pairs up and then you can grab sources from that, like the displays, the cameras, everything. But what's cool is you can pair multiple devices to one Infinicine account. Okay. So we can actually pull in sources remotely. So while we're setting up the scene, if I click the plus button and I click camera or video device, you'll see that I can grab the camera from this computer or the capture card. But I also grab the camera from that computer over there. And so this allows for people to stream together remotely. Think about doing your podcast, but instead of everybody Skyping each other, capturing that, carving up everyone's videos, shoving that in a production environment, hopefully Skype and everything else doesn't crash. Instead, you would just add each person's webcam to the screen right here. So let's add this webcam. Let's grab an image. Nice. So let's grab uh, like a little interesting tag. We'll toss that over here. And then uh, let's grab a display, like the culling game. So I'm gonna grab that guy playing over there. Sure. Now I covered everything up. I'm just gonna drag this to the low bottom half so it's on the bottom layer. Really, really easy. Most people with no experience do their first stream in four to five minutes uh, from never having That's done That's impressive before. considering the, the time of, you need to learn of the others. Weeks of learning, setup, frustration, watching YouTube videos, what are bit rates, what's the best one. Installing plugins, customizing. Yeah, what do I need to buy? How yeah. many plugins do I need to run? Oh, I also need Skype. That exposes my IP address. What's DDoSing? Anyway, <laughs> long story short, if I was a beginner streamer, this is good enough where we are right now. Some of the previews, we got great internet here today. Up here in the corner, you'll notice the audio mixer. So this is bold everything in. Your scenes are across the bottom. We store thumbnails for each of them. So once you're live, you can actually pull in uh, or see you know, which scene is which. What you also have is the ability to add things that people are already used to, like Twitch alerts. But instead of having to install the browser plugin and everything else, you just position this here. Right now, you have to paste in the launch URL. Um, 
that you would get from Twitch alerts, but soon we're going to turn this into a drop down where you just grab, like you just pick out chat box or whatever. So that's actually changing next week. So you should have that. And when you click away to edit other things, that appear area disappears so you can keep editing through it. I mean, that's we did that for uh, like that. So you can set up, I want my alerts to be huge, but I can still edit everything behind it when you're not, yeah. Um, chroma key works. It's really cool in a browser, actually. So we can select, uh, let's say the red, that'll work. Turn that on, let's lower it down. Nice. But one of the things you'll notice is that that's transparent video. Right. Uh, in the browser, which enables you to uh, see what it looks like before it goes live in the engine. Last bit, actually there's two more last bits, but you store all of your projects in the cloud. So you can have a Counter-Strike setup and a culling setup and whatever, all your graphics and overlays and settings for League of Legends, World of Warcraft. Yeah. So you can have multiple projects, they're all backed up to the cloud, no matter where you are, the only thing you need to do is link the computer you're on and all your settings, overlays, alerts are ready to go wherever you are. Yeah. Also, no more OBS crashing, deleting all your scenes, and you resetting everything up. So let's go control. We talked about remote producing and directing. Yes. So you'll be able to invite somebody else into a project. And yeah. So let's control the stream that we're sending to the Culling's uh, Twitch channel right now. So this is actually their stream. And one of the cool parts about our software is you can actually edit this whole scene, and your viewers won't see any of it. So I can move this webcam, my viewers are like, oh, the webcam's in the way of blah, blah, blah. I can move this all the way over here, and until I hit update live, they don't see anything. Once I hit update live, it fades out here and fades in over there. That's amazing. Acts as a preview out monitor. For anybody who has real production experience, you'll appreciate that. Absolutely. Now, here's another thing. You're mid-show, you remember you wanted to show a YouTube video, but you're in the middle of talking, something like that. Add a scene, okay, add a window capture of a browser, a YouTube video. Set your whole scene up, you're still only recording or you're still only sending this. So you can set up this whole scene, or you invited a guest on the show. You forgot to set up the scene for it. <laughs> add the webcam, add the second webcam, set this whole thing up. Meanwhile, you're still talking, entertaining, or she's doing all the setup, who knows? You have a remote director, he's like, hey, just so you know, scene three is ready in five. You know, you're like, blah, blah, blah. You're selling this. Then she'll click this, click update live, and now we're live on that. You've it. dynamically added a scene, you haven't had to start and stop the stream to just anything. Update Live allows you to do a lot of things, mess with audio settings, uh, yeah. So we're, the whole thing acts as a preview out monitor. I love that you're talking about things in terms of being a director too, so it's like, if you have someone directing your scene, like let's say you are doing a podcast, and even if you don't want everybody in the same specific window, it's like cut to camera B, cut to camera yeah. A, and that you can really produce content. Well, and what's interesting for content creators right now is they're they're even more talented than people even believe because in no other industry does the talent also have to be the producer, the director, the technical lead, handle all of that stuff, yeah. handle all their motion graphics, and try to be funny and good at their games. Like, it's really incredible what these one, what is it, 1.7 now broadcasters on Twitch, 1.7 million? Yeah, what they've been able to accomplish with such limited tools up until now. So we're hoping that now you can invite your friend and say, hey, I'm getting popular, I'd like you to run my graphics or run my director so I can just focus on you know being a streamer yeah. and, and X. so yeah that's exactly right and then the next thing is is uh, we actually launched a mobile app and the mobile app uh, shows you all of your scenes okay so you can go into any one of your projects on your phone once you're set up your whole project here and you go live you can close this web browser go into your game and you don't have to alt tab or use hotkeys or any of that you can use this as a little so what you're seeing actually on the phone is tiles of each of your scenes when I tap this, it switches to that scene. 
So, hey guys, thanks. Be right back. I'm going to grab some water. See you in five. Boom. You're off. You're on another scene. Stop, start the stream. And the other thing I forgot to tell you is that no matter how much fun you're having or how much trouble you're having with our product, there's live chat support with us 24 hours a day. And there's only 10 of us, but usually one of us is up at 4 in the morning. Yeah. Uh, but that's in the app and on your phone, so you can talk to us. And uh, I was messing with Zach from here. But <laughs> Fantastic. So this is really innovative. Now, what, what gaps were you seeing in the market that made you want to do this? The gap was almost my own. Uh, and it wasn't my idea, not fully my idea. My buddy Aaron called me and said, what if we controlled OBS through a web browser? And I'm like, great, there's like 20 people that would use that. I go, how about we try fixing the core of the problem? Well, it's going to be hard. Let's call Dan. So we got Dan, my co-founder. Ryan's the designer. But what we ended up with was I had tried to use OBS. I'm a pretty big nerd. I used to design liquid coolers. I have half a computer engineering degree. I'm like, I opened OBS. I was like, could I learn this? Yes. Do I want to spend any amount of time doing any of this? No. Like, can somebody show me this? And like, everyone was like, oh, yeah, well, it's like, eventually I was like, screw it. So Aaron and I started working on this idea. So Dan, Ryan, for a year and a half ago, two years, um, started working on this. We thought we'd have the initial prototype done in three months. It took nine. Almost lost my apartment putting my last dollars in the company this time last year. Wow. Got accepted as part of the 1% acceptance into Techstars last summer. Congrats. Uh, thank you. And uh, raised uh, close to $2 million in the fall. Just hired my 11th full-time employee. So we went to the brink and came right back. It's a crazy idea, and it actually works. It's a crazy good idea, though. <laughs> I mean, it's really impressive. Uh, as far as running it on your computer, you said it's an application that runs. What are we talking in terms of, like, CPU usage, sure. bandwidth usage? No, it's a good question. Originally, what we set out to do is lighten the load and do most of the encoding in the cloud. Now, just by very nature of you sending me that camera, there has to be some encoding on the machine. Sure. And if you add up that we're also capturing the game and the camera, that's two streams now you're technically sending up a computer. But you're not compositing, you're not doing downscaling, you're not doing a lot of the other things that can eat up CPU sources. So if you're capturing like four sources off of one machine, we can actually potentially be worse than OBS. Which, if you're a normal streamer capturing just a game and a camera, we actually can be far better. So it really depends on what you're trying to set up. In a podcast environment where everyone's remote, each person's computer is only focused on sending one camera stream, so it could be ultra lightweight. So we've seen as much as 50% savings yeah. over OBS or XSplit, and we've seen as much as exact same, and sometimes a little bit more. But what we're releasing uh, later this summer, uh, we'll blow the top off that. We have a thin client coming. It's a complete rewrite of our local client. Uh, it has some technical capabilities that allow us to dynamically shift the load that we're putting on the user's machine, and uh, it's really cool stuff. It's so thin to the point where we're going to be embedding it places, uh, like Xbox, like PlayStation, so that when you're in that drop-down, you not only add your video sources from your PC and Mac, but you'd see your Xbox sitting there, and you could click that. Without a capture card, you could load in your Xbox screen. That's Those are my favorite words you just said there, without a capture card. Now, just to show some love to some of our friends at Elgato and Haver Media, because <laughs> we are friends with them, what we're talking about is the ability for a console streamer with no experience to get started streaming. You want crystal clear frame rates at 60 FPS, definitely buy an Elgato. You know, and that's the upgrade. And that's, you know, what I've always told them. Uh, it's not about eliminating the need for a capture card. It's about giving access to people right now, letting them dip their toes in the water, see even something they want to do. To some people, that's good enough. Yeah. Just like to some people, my headset mic is good enough to stream with, not a, you know, full-on condenser sure, mic and that kind sure. of thing. So, you know, to each their own. But I just want to, you know, be clear about that, too. 
So you're in beta right now, correct? Yeah. And uh, I was in beta like a month ago. Okay. So yeah, is there a projected complete release or to get out of beta or is that is it too no, early? I have no problem. I mean, so we two to three months is at most. Okay. I'd like to just get out the door. Um, you know, honestly, a lot of people have already tried to give us money. You know, not tons, but like, you know, some said, you know, I'll give you five bucks a month. Some said I'll give you 20. So we got to figure that out first. You know, what we're going to charge for it. But two to three months, I think my biggest thing is that I want to feel like it's worth paying money for it. If I ask somebody for $10, $15, whatever it ends up being, I want to feel like they and we both agree that this is a good exchange, sure, sure. right? And so we have some polish left, little details that I want to get right. I told you that Twitch alerts thing. That's one of the examples of that. Just getting really, really seamless on that stuff. But like I told you guys, there's 11 of us. Stay humble, work hard. We'll launch this summer. We'll launch this summer. So. Has it been difficult establishing relationships with things like Twitch alerts and maybe other companies that you want to kind of bring into the fold and make it a part of the service? No. No. Actually, um, so I think I told you earlier, my background is in the gaming industry. Yeah, yeah. I've been here since it's the only job I've had is I've worked in this industry. So. Uh, what was really kind of heartwarming was when we decided to start this, we called on a lot of our friends that ended up at different companies over the years, and everyone's just jumped at the ability, uh, you know, to support us. Um, just some wonderful people around the industry. And uh, Twitch Alerts, uh, we reached out to them early on. He was excited. I mean, it's a benefit for him, too. You don't know how many support tickets that those guys get about how the browser plugin sucks. Sure. So if he got a one-click addition to get Twitch Alerts into a stream, of course he's going to love it. Uh, our boys over at GameWisp. Uh, they're a, also a Techstars company. They went through the Techstars Chicago program. They're excited to integrate uh, Muxi.io. I mean, shit, it seems like there's a new bot coming out every week. Right? There's a lot of them. But no, it's uh, we're additive to the ecosystem. And, you know, people ask, like, oh, are you like StreamPro? And I'm like, no, because StreamPro does a nice job building an overlay editor. We're that, but you actually can stream from there, you know. And uh, we have a really great relationship with the OBS guy, uh, Jim. Yeah, he's a good friend, nice guy. Uh, we build fundamentally different products. You know, we, I love him for consistently working on a project that he's provided for free for such a community without, with little to no pay. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for open source and what he's done. Um, we've actually used a little bit of open source, this GPL code in the client. We're moving away from it, but it was the best way for us to get the prototype done. Uh, he was supportive in the sense that he said as long as we abide by the GPL, you know, we're good. So we're doing that soon. We're releasing the source code for the client. Yeah. Yeah, the community's been awesome. You know, we called uh, Boys at Twitch, too. Yeah. Uh, you know, Adam Contini. In his words, this is, uh, well, I won't cuss, but this is earth-shattering. Oh, you can go ahead. Oh, okay, so he, like, looked at me. when The first time I showed him the really basic working prototype, yeah. like, a year ago, he goes, this is fucking earth-shattering. I mean, they, we're really excited. And the platforms love us because we can get their content creators on board faster. Nothing but love. Yeah. Even the people that struggle with our product in the beta, they, like, They'll have two hours long of misery trying to get something to work because we're in beta and there's bugs. And then they'll get up and running, stream for five hours and tweet. Infinizine and their team are just some of the best people in product ever. And we just stay home and work hard. We just have a really good time. Community the potential is clearly there. Is awesome. Clearly there. So, I mean, this is this is going to be the thing. And you can tell I'm excited about it. I talk oh, to yeah. You yeah. As you should be. As you should be. You got everything in this. It's fantastic. Uh, I'm very excited to give it a try and uh, look forward Look forward to the evolution of it. Cool. Like you said, there's a lot of stuff on the way. Yeah, I know. I'm excited for it. So yeah, uh, mobile broadcasting. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Yeah. 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 So being able to actually mobile broadcast in the sense of not just send your game to one website and the cam from your phone, but you have all of your alerts and your overlays still available while you're streaming a mobile game. So you can pull in the webcam from your desktop 
within the screen from your phone and still have your alerts, like full production value. Wow. Unlike some other mobile streaming services, we can actually be additive. Or you could be going live from PAX with all of your alerts and overlays added in the cloud once it's passing through us. The creative juices are already flowing. Oh, it's a fun. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much for talking. Thank you. I appreciate, I appreciate it. it. Thanks for coming by. Awesome. All right, so I'm here with Dan Driggs, uh, who's working on a VR project called The Piper. Uh, you are here at the WPI booth at PAX. Uh, how did this project come together? Uh, team, how many people are involved? Cool. Hi, Rob. First off, um, thanks for coming over here to interview me. I really appreciate it. So this was my MQP. That The project idea was actually pitched by Brian Moriarty. Um, you know, some of you might recognize that name from Loom. He's the creator of Loom. He gave a post-mortem talk at GDC uh, last year. And he wanted to make a game based on The Legend of the Pied Piper. And so myself, along with another artist, two programmers and an audio guy all kind of collaborated to create what we're showing here at PAX. So uh, for someone that's looking to get into VR as it is kind of the new uh, thing, what kind of coursework do they have at WPI that you can take and kind of get into this area? So unfortunately at WPI right now, um, VR is sort of what you want to make of it. So if you want to integrate that into your project, that's sort of all on you. But hopefully in the future, they will actually have a VR dedicated course. Yeah. So if, if somebody's like even at the high school level, um, what would you encourage that they take in order to then progress this? In order, so like in order to pursue game development? I would say if you're in high school right now, you should definitely start and download Game Maker and go from there and just start, you know, doing tutorials and just starting start to get familiar with game development concepts as a whole. And then once you're ready, go ahead and download either Unity or Unreal Engine 4 because both of those programs are free. And you can also, you know, go ahead and work on tutorials with that and just, just get yourself familiar with game development. If other people want to check out Piper, uh, you said that it's going to be available online for free. So if they have an Oculus, or does it work for any kind of VR setup? Or so right now we're just we just have it set up for Oculus. However, in the future we might have it set up for the OSVR. Um, but yeah, the Piper will be available for free download off of www.thepipergame.com. And if people want to see more of your work, where can they go for that? My online portfolio can be located at dandriggs.com. Awesome! Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Rob. All right, so we're here talking about Mages of Mistralia. Uh, for people that have not heard of the game, because this is your first time showing it publicly, correct? That's right, yeah. We just announced it a few weeks ago uh, at GDC, and this is the first time people are able to see it and get their hands on it. The game looks gorgeous. Uh, for one, were there different art styles that you played around with before setting on the cel-shaded kind of idea? Yeah, so um, we we had a few goals in mind of like what we really wanted to achieve with the the art style. One of our bigger inspirations was kind of like those classic European comic strips from like the 40s, like uh, Tintin, if you remember sure, those, like yeah. kind of uh, like, you know, muted color palette um, and very kind of timeless, um, accessible to people of all ages without being childish because um, we didn't want it to look like a cartoony game. Yeah. Um, but we also wanted it to appeal uh, very broadly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah the, it, it's very inviting. Um, when I saw it, I was like, oh, this looks like a fun... Like, there's something fun and colorful and nice about it, uh, but it's also deceptively complex on the back end as well, too, which I like. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that's, inviting is a really good word for it. Yeah, we, we, we didn't want to have yet another dark world, you know, brown and gray and, you know, dark color palette. We wanted it to be vibrant. Sure. We wanted it to be, you know, we took a lot of inspiration from games like Ocarina of Time where it's, you know, you just 
want to be in that world and you want to see like all the quirky characters and um, and just see that world come to life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things about the game that I think is one of, probably one of the biggest selling points and that was so appealing to me is the spell crafting system. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, yeah, that's really the core of the game. So in the game, you, you play as a character named Zia who wakes up to discover that she has magic abilities and uh, magic is unfortunately outlawed where she lives and so she goes into exile and tries to teach herself the ways of magic and she... Uh, finds these magical runes, uh, which she can then use to um, uh, modify the different spells that she starts off with. So she starts off with four categories of spells. Um, they are melee, orb, uh, self, and conjure. Okay. And multiply you know those four types by four essences, which are air, fire, water, and earth. And so you've got like 16 starting points. But then when you augment those with different runes, you can modify those in different ways and ultimately millions of potential combinations to create really complex spells. Uh, One of the things we're working on that's not in this build is uh, we want to have nested spells. So being able to do things like once it hits its target, it can then trigger other spells to to initiate. So, So people who... There, I think there's going to be kind of two major categories of players. Some people are just going to put in a bunch of runes and just see what happens. Yeah. And, and then there's going to be some who are like experts in the system and really uh, making spells that are very tailor-made to something they want to do. And the more fluent you are in the system, the more you can get design spells that do something very specific um, and it'll be very deep. Is part of the spell crafting to allow a player maybe multiple solutions to a certain puzzle? Oh, absolutely, yeah. In fact, um, because there's so many potential combinations, there's no way we could test every single one. So already in uh, at PAX East, when people have been playing it and, and there's a simple boss battle at the end of the demo, we've already found people coming up with solutions to beat that boss yeah. that we never even thought of. How rewarding is that to see the system you put in place used in that way? Oh, it's it's really gratifying. We're like, all right, there is, you know, we always imagined that there would be a lot of depth in there. Um, but, you know, I think in the back of our minds, we were like, is there going to be like some kind of dominant spell that everyone winds up using? Because that's clearly the best way to go. Um, and we're finding that, no, actually, people put a lot of their own you know, I guess personality into it. They, you know, the way they view how to beat the boss, that's how they kind of gravitate. It's kind of in a way like a Rorschach test where you go in and like people see, oh, well, clearly the obvious solution is to create, you know, uh, to conjure up some earth to push back this boss. And other people are like, no, obviously what you want to do is create multiple fireballs to shoot at the boss, you know. And so everyone kind of sees what they think of as like, the obvious solution, but everyone has a different obvious solution in mind. Cool. Yeah. All right, so we're going to take a look at the game, too. Yeah. Um, and you said this is uh, got a little bit different than the demo you have on display here? Or? Yeah, so it's actually very different from the demo that we've got on the show floor. So the, the, the game, as it stands right now, we've got about five hours of gameplay done. Okay. Um, I think by the end of the, when we're all said and done, it'll probably be about a 15-hour uh game single player campaign yeah um so this is just before this scene i guess uh your listeners may not be able to see this that's okay um but this is uh the second boss and i'm going to so let me uh i'll just describe 
as, as I mentioned before, there's that uh, four different types of spells and four different uh, categories are four different essences. So I'll show like this is like what a melee looks like. It's melee with air. It's just like a little bit of uh, lightning. Um, an orb is just an orb that just sits there. Okay. Um, and if an enemy is stupid enough to <laughs> run into it, they'll take some damage. Um, self, if you uh, don't do anything to modify it, it's a shield. Um, and then conjure. Uh, this is uh, conjure using water will create some ice. Um, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to orb and say okay, so I'm gonna take that orb and I'm going to attach a move rune to it. So now instead of just a fireball, just a ball sitting there, it'll actually move. Oh, great. And so it becomes um, uh, like a, a moving fireball. And I'm gonna take this move Magic rune. Missile. <laughs> exactly. And now I'm going to put that same move rune on water. And now if I conjure something, it'll create kind of like this ice bridge. And so in the demo that we've got people playing, uh, there's actually a stretch of water that people have to go over. And you could do like conjure, conjure, conjure and make your way across slowly. Or you can attach the move rune and have it create a bridge. Um, so I'll go back to orb. Um, I'll put that move rune in there, and I'll also add a time rune. And the time increases the speed. So now, the, I don't know if you could tell the difference, but it actually moves a lot faster. Yeah. yeah. And now I'm really going to break the game all. <laughs> now, what prevents a player from just throwing everything on a spell? So you'll notice that there's a mana cost. So right now, by adding both time and move, that that spell costs 17 mana. Okay. Um, and your, as you progress through the game, your capacity, your mana capacity increases. So not only will you get more runes and create more complicated spells, but you'll also be able to uh, do those spells more often. Like if you create a really complicated spell, you might only be able to cast it once and then you have to wait for your mana to recharge. But okay. the more mana you have, the more you can increase it. So here, you know, this is 17. I just gave myself, uh, I cheated and put myself in god mode. I gave myself all the runes and also unlimited mana. Okay. Um, so if I get rid of this time, that goes down to 13. Now this costs just five with just the orb by itself. But now I'm gonna put a whole bunch of crap in there. Um, and it totally breaks the game, but um, I'll put in, uh, actually I'm gonna remove detonate, um, even though Detonate's really cool. For this boss, actually detonate, you need certain things to catch fire. Okay. And um, if you detonate, it won't catch fire. Um, I'll put in the homing, so oh it'll... Uh, let's see, what else can I put in there? Uh, repeating, which uh, makes it so that I can cast the spell uh, very quickly, over and over. Um, let's see, teleport, detonate, homing, repeat. I think this will be good. This will be a good start. So, let me see if I'm missing anything important. There's bouncing and boomeranging and stuff like that, but for here, like, Whoa. yeah. So I've got like five fireballs all going out at once. And so now I'm ready for this boss battle. And, you know, I'm totally breaking this build because <laughs> you're not supposed to have all those runes and unlimited mana. So I'm gonna destroy this boss pretty quickly. 
but normally it would take a little bit longer. So the key for this boss, and um, it's in our trailer actually, he's got those three purple areas which are exposed weak, weak spots, and if you can set those on fire, that causes him to open his mouth and expose. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, it's hard to describe, but there's like fireballs flying all over the place because there's homing and it circles in on the different enemies. Um, oh, and he's got little spots that he catches on fire, needs to drop into the water to kind of shake it off. off. And once all three of those, then he's he's truly exposed, and you can get to his his weak spot and and hammer around at that. Now, if someone was using something other than fire, would that not work on this boss? That's right. Yeah. So in this case, you would need fire because he's made of wood. So shooting an ice ball at him uh, would not work because you need him to catch fire. So there are different scenarios where you might need different spell types. Like if you're crossing over a bridge of water, uh, you would want to use either ice or maybe earth to cross over that. Like a fire bridge would probably not help you that much. Right. Yeah. Right. Just give you a hot foot as you bounce along. Yeah. yeah. I believe you... Uh, right now in this build anyway, you don't take damage if you touch your own uh, your own magic. So if I like remove all of these and I uh, I'll just create a fire orb like I did at the beginning. Yeah. And if I walk through it, I, I don't take damage. Um, we might change that later, but probably not. I, I think uh, when you cause yourself damage, that becomes more annoying than fun. Agreed. So Agreed. yeah. So, yeah, so that's kind of the, the core concept of the game. Awesome. There's um, all kinds of environmental puzzles where we're going to test your fluency in the spell design mechanic. So uh, there might be an obstacle in your path, and you have to create a spell where you can shoot around that obstacle and hit the target that you need to hit. Okay. Um, and then there's also going to be, like I said, boss battles where you just need to create the most powerful spell you can and just... And just um, and then just destroy it as quickly as possible. Yeah. So there's going to be times when you just want to like throw a bunch of stuff in there, and other times when you really want to be very surgical in how you design a spell for a very specific purpose. That's awesome. Yeah. The game looks so good. Uh, is there a projected a timeline as to when people are going to be able to get their hands on it and on what consoles? Sure. So officially, all we're saying is 2017. Um, Internally, you know, we're shooting for, you know, hopefully this time next year, but, you know, who knows? Um, you know, we'll ship it when it's ready, of course. Yeah. Um, it's uh, definitely going to be on Steam, of course. Uh, and then probably at least one console. Okay. Uh, we're talking with all three platforms. Uh, we're already signed up as developers on all of them. Uh, so we could totally bring it everywhere. Uh, it's developed in Unity, which makes it uh, very easy to support the console. So... Uh, at this point, it's just a question of resources uh, and then figuring out. We'll probably start off with maybe one console at launch, like Steam plus one console. And then uh, we'll add more support for additional consoles uh, as soon as we can. Great. I really look forward to this game. Like I said, it looks beautiful. The mechanic is intriguing. And uh, I love I love the whole approach to it. So thank you for chatting with us. Thank you so much. All right. We're here talking about MechaZoo. 
Uh, and you've said this game has been in development for quite a while, and it's nearing the completion uh, time releases right around the corner. So can you give us the uh, premise of the game? Yeah, so MechaZoo is a 2D platformer in a 3D world. Uh, you play as a bunch of different animals. You progressively unlock as you beat the boss version at the end of each world. Um, and you combine the animals in pairs, switch between them on the fly, and... Um, yeah, it's, just, it's a traversal platformer, kind of a nostalgia of our 16-bit youth, plus the technology of today. Yeah. Some fresh mechanics, kind of looks familiar and then plays differently. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fun game. I yeah. enjoy it. There, there's definitely a Donkey Kong Country vibe, I heard you say that, in relation to it. Uh, I definitely felt that progressing through the exploration, the puzzle solving, integrated into the levels. I never feel like I'm in a separate puzzle. It's just there for me. Right, yeah. We never, I mean, it is, there are some kind of, uh, you know, moments when you got to figure out which animal you should be, what yeah, yeah. combination you should be, but we never want to stop you for too long, you know, never want you to, like, stand there stumped. So it's just kind of uh, reflexes. If we develop a visual language to kind of intuitively show you which animal you should be for different types of terrain you know like armadillo rolls on curves so when you see curved terrain you know you want to roll up with armadillo you see a post that's just out of reach you know you might want to be the frog to latch on with your tongue and, and so on yeah there's um the visual language like having to play with colors and stuff too there's a very neon world here um why the technology aspect um well i mean we just we had this kind of like a mechanical zoo it's it's like kind of a it, it was kind of an aesthetic choice it was kind of a like we wanted to make it make sense that they are transforming into each other so yeah. making it too like naturalistic would be kind of weird and sure. we just we really like the aesthetic of it like we we made our choices kind of experience first narrative was definitely an afterthought like by choice we you know in these modern platformers where they just like stop your progress and give you a bunch of dialogue like story that you didn't come for you know we we're not really into that so we just wanted to keep you in control at all times and and uh just kind of um yeah just everything is there for the fun of it you know to enhance the experience and, sure. and make it just the coolest funnest platformer most yeah there's fun a, a nice blend between the organic and the mechanic uh, it's almost like if the the Tron world had pets within it and they're they're being brought into here. Um, the depth of the game is something we talked about a little too. Uh, it's visually gorgeous, but you're never feeling like you're on a 2D plane. Yes, the characters are rendered in 3D, but so are the levels. The levels go back and forward and there's a really nice sense of space. Right, yeah, so I mean, it's a 3D world. We built it in Unity. You have basically a spline running through the world. The character sticks too, so all the gameplay is 2D. We really like the uh, simplicity of the 2D gameplay, not dealing with like jumping into the, into the depth, you know, on a 2D screen. The camera just follows around uh, the spline and it makes for some really kind of cinematic moments and really cool kind of environmental depth. Sure. You had said that there were some puzzles. You're seeing people solve them in different ways. How much do you learn about a game by bringing it to something like this? Oh, so much. I mean, because we play it having built the game and we really like lose our perspective, like our user perspective. Yep. Like, sometimes I'll just step away for a week and come back and play you know, and just kind of refresh my perspective. Watching people play for the first time, <laughs> I really had no idea 
like how difficult or easy to pick up and play this would be until I see people for the first time just sure. picking it up and, and very quickly uh, getting a grasp of it. So and, and everyone kind of has different different levels of like how quickly they they, they get a hold of it, but as soon as they uh, kind of start to learn the controls and, and start to just kind of get used to the line because we don't hold your hand you know like we don't have any you know explicit tutorials it's all kind of built into the game design and just the inherent simplicity of the controls so um, yeah it's been really nice to see how intuitive it is for people to pick it up and have success and have fun and uh, and yeah people are really willing to kind of put in the time to to just get used to the feel and, and it's really cool seeing people just get better and better really rapidly. Yeah, it's yeah. definitely a very skill based game. Yeah, I definitely I struggled a little bit at the beginning, especially the wallaby. He's uh he's a tricky one to control, but then after a little bit I felt like I was kind of falling into a pattern with him and learning right. a groove and mm -hmm. exactly, yeah. I mean every animal you know, because we don't have any run and jump characters like most platformers. Uh, so every character kind of uh, feels more different, more unique than you initially would expect. So yeah, there is a little bit of a learning curve to all of them, but they all kind of, once you get used to them, they, they're really smooth, they all combine really nicely, and just switching between them rapidly, and you know, it, it just becomes very natural. You almost forget the controllers in your hand, which is really what we wanted. Yeah. So if people want to know more about this game, you said release is right around the corner. Uh, when are we looking at what consoles? We're looking at uh, late summer, Xbox One, PS4, uh, PC, Mac, Linux, a Nintendo console a little while after that. Okay. Uh, and yeah, that's our that's our primary launch. And if people want more information on the game, where can they go? You can go to goodmoodcreators.com and uh, you can see all the information about the game. You can also just check out any of the uh, coverage we've been getting by the media lately. Google Magazine, that always works. Cool. Thank you so much for joining us. The game's great. I can't wait to play the full Thank version. You. Appreciate it. You can head on over to thegeekgeneration.com to see everything else that we do. If you use iTunes, please rate the show and write a review. We always appreciate those. You can like us at facebook.com slash thegeekgeneration and follow at geekgeneration on Twitter. You can watch live podcasts and gaming at twitch.tv slash thegeekgeneration. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at thenightangel. Support the show by going to thegeekgeneration.com slash support. You can send emails to podcast at thegeekgeneration.com. And as always, the show theme is provided by Machine Supremacy. A link to their site can also be found on our site. We'll be back soon with more geeky stuff for you, and we will see you then. Later. Make it so.